Today we're continuing our, our study through the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, which, you know, if you have any exposure to this book whatsoever, you know it's, it's a pretty drab book on the whole. You know, I, I told a buddy that we were studying Ecclesiastes right now, and he kind of chuckled. He's like, is everything okay? Is everything all right at LCC? Like, are you guys in the midst of crisis and you're just trying to sort it out? No, I think, I think we're doing okay, and we have a reason we're studying uh, this book. Um, it's, it's a really rich book. It's, it's a gift to us that we have it. And Ecclesiastes has been described in a lot of ways uh, by people throughout the history of the church. You know, Ecclesiastes has been called the existential book of the Bible, Uh, which means that it asks the why behind existence, right? Like Ecclesiastes asks, why does life matter? Like, what are we doing here? It's also been called the metaphysical book of the Bible, which means it asks the question, why is there something instead of nothing? You know, kind of the pessimistic philosophers over time have often said, like, sometimes it seems like nothing would be better than something. And, you know, Ecclesiastes has been described as wrestling with that. And now, yeah, sure, you know, existentialism, metaphysics, these are major disciplines within the world of philosophy. It's not, it's not language that we often use. Like, you're not readily going to find someone who says, like, hey, let's share a meal and talk metaphysics, like, shall we? And though we don't use that language all that often, we ask these questions pretty regularly, right? Like, you're much more Uh, likely to be sitting across the table from someone you care about and you hear them say, man, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I don't don't really know if my work matters. I don't know if I'm a good parent. I, I, I I don't know any of this. Like, it all feels just so vapid and kind of bleak. And this is the much more common human experience, right? We don't call it, you know, existential conversations or metaphysical conversations. We just call it longings that are in our heart. And this is such a common human experience, which is why we have songs like Dust in the Wind and Bohemian Rhapsody and Eleanor Rigby, you know, Even in our comedic movies, like Office Space, these things that grapple with, like, what matters? Like, does any of this really matter? And we have have dramatic plays like Macbeth that continue to grapple with these questions. You know, I I just listed a lot of things over several eras and multiple genres that are asking the same thing. What? What really matters? Does life matter at all? You know, in in his play, uh, Macbeth, Shakespeare uh, said that life is an ugly tale told by an idiot. And kind of in the context of the play, what he was saying is that life is just so empty and meaningless that it's the work of the idiot to try to interpret meaning at all. Like if, if you connect dots, if you, if you try to find order in your life, like what an idiotic enterprise and so then in the, in the 19th century, we, we got Frederick Nietzsche, who, who kind of whittled all of this angsty human longing down into one kind of philosophical school of thought called nihilism, and said, do you want to know what life is? Do you want me to tell you what life is? Here's what it is. Life is a cruel joke. Life is a joke that is being had at our expense. It is a cruel joke. That's all that life is. So, you know, just get comfortable. He says, nothing lasts, 
Our desires aren't shaped by some greater meaning or order. And, you know, kind of like Shakespeare posited, Nietzsche was like, and if you try to connect dots, you're just going to be doing that forever. It's a goal without hope of success. And so, you know, these these hard, these drab questions have, have spanned kind of the grand history, or the grand narrative of history from, from Shakespeare to Nietzsche, from, from Ernest Hemingway to the Beatles. You know, we've been asking these really hard questions. And yeah, while this all admittedly feels quite bleak, given how universal it is, I'm so grateful that we have a book in our Bible that grapples with these things, right? Like, we don't have to pretend that people don't think this way, and they haven't forever. And we certainly don't have to pretend, like, we don't think this way. And now, you know, we, we, we currently find ourselves in the season of Eastertide. And in the history of the church, that's a season that's pretty ordinarily associated with, with celebration and hope and optimism. So why, of all times of the year, are we studying Ecclesiastes right now? Like, it, it seems like an odd place to put Ecclesiastes. Well, here's why. In the book of Matthew, following his resurrection, in Jesus' final speech to his followers, he starts with this stanza. Go and make disciples. Right? And we hear to us, go and make disciples of those who wonder what they're even doing here. Go and make disciples of people like Pilate, who at the trial of Jesus, if you remember, said, like, what is truth? You know, kind of that existential pondering was happening then. What is truth? Go and make disciples and demonstrate that the empty promises of this world, the empty pursuits of this world, the empty pleasures of this world are utterly futile when compared to the rich and abundant life that God offers. And, you know, maybe this is the kind of discipling you feel like you need today. And I'm glad you're here. Maybe this is the kind of discipling your neighbor hears. You know, that name that you wrote on the card. Maybe this is the kind of discipling they need. So, let's continue our study through our dark book, shall we? Now, now Mike Mike kicked us off last week in in chapter 1 and introduced this character to us, the teacher. And, And the teacher is kind of presented to us as this, you know, this kind of grizzled and weathered old soul who's just talking about their life as they've experienced it. You know, they're, they're sharing wisdom at the end of their life. You know, I've, I've heard that the, uh, that the closest modern-day equivalent to wisdom literature is the autobiography. And you know, Dave Rhodes pointed out to me this week that in the first and second chapter, I, me, and my comes up you know, like 50 or 60 times. This very much reads like the teacher just sharing his autobiography. Let me, let me tell you what I've learned. And the great frustration that he shares in chapter one is the enormity of time and space and history. Right? He says like, I don't remember former generations. Future generations won't remember me. You know, the sun rises, the sun sets, the sun rises, the sun sets, mountains outlive us all. And on that, like, grand timeline, I don't even register as a blip. Like, I'm that small. And he's kind of frustrated by that realization. He says, time 
just marches on and on and on and on, and I don't really occupy any meaningful space on that grand timeline. And then chapter one and chapter two hold together. It's kind of that first complete thought. And chapter two, what we're just about to read, is kind of his proof that what he believes about time and its enormity is true. So, in that spirit, now hear a reading from Ecclesiastes 2. Hear the voice of our weathered teacher. I thought to myself, come, now, I will, I will try self-indulgent pleasure to see if it's worthwhile. But I found that it also is futile. I said of partying, it is folly. And of self-indulgent pleasure, it accomplishes nothing. I thought deeply about the effects of indulging myself with wine all the while my mind was guiding me with wisdom and the effects of behaving foolishly so that I might discover what is profitable for people to do on earth during the few days of their lives. I increased my possessions. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I designed royal gardens and parks for myself. And I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I constructed pools of water for myself to irrigate, to irrigate my grove of flourishing trees. I purchased male and female slaves, and I owned slaves who were born in my house. I also possessed more livestock, both herds and flocks, than any of my predecessors in Jerusalem. I also amassed, amassed silver and gold for myself, as well as valuable treasures taken from kingdoms and provinces. I acquired male singers and female singers for myself, and what gives a man sensual delight, a harem of beautiful concubines. So I was far wealthier than all my predecessors in Jerusalem, yet I maintained my objectivity. I did not restrain myself from getting whatever I wanted. I did not deny myself anything that would bring me pleasure. So all my accomplishments gave me joy. This was my reward for all my effort. Yet when I reflected on everything I had accomplished, and on all the effort that I extended to accomplish it, I concluded all these achievements and possessions are ultimately profitless, like chasing the wind. There's nothing gained from them on earth. Well, next, I decided to consider wisdom as well as foolish behavior and ideas. For what more can the king's successor do than the king has already done? I realize that wisdom is preferable to folly, just as light is preferable to darkness. The wise man can see where he is going, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I also realized that the same fate happens to them both. So I thought to myself, the fate of the fool will happen even to me. Then what did I gain by becoming so excessively wise? So I lamented to myself, the benefits of wisdom are ultimately meaningless. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be remembered for very long, because in the days to come, both will already have been forgotten. Alas, the wise man dies, just like the fool. So I loathed life, because what happens on earth seems awful to me, for the benefits of wisdom are futile, chasing the wind. So I loathed all the fruit of my effort for which I worked so hard on earth because I must leave it behind in the hands of my successor. Who knows if he will be a wise man or a fool? Yet he will be master 
over all the fruit of my labor, for which I worked so wisely on earth, that also is futile. That's why I began to despair about all the fruit of my labor for which I worked so hard on earth. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. However, he must hand over the fruit of his labor as an inheritance to someone else who did not work for it. This also is futile and an awful injustice. What does a man acquire from all his labor and from the anxiety that accompanies his toil on earth? For all day long, his work produces pain and frustration, and even at night, his mind cannot relax. This also is futile. Well, there's nothing better for people than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in their work. I also perceived that this ability to find enjoyment comes from God. For no one can eat or experience joy apart from him. For to the one who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy but to the sinner he gives the task of amassing wealth, only to give it to the one who pleases God. This task of the wicked is futile, like chasing the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, quiet our hearts. Make it possible for us to listen well in this moment of silence. Jesus, give your bride what she needs. It's in your grace. Amen. It's bleak, right? It's really bleak. You know, like I said, kind of the the argument, the frustration of chapter one is that this cosmic scale and timeline of history is so vast and large that no matter what, we're not going to occupy any meaningful space. And then, like I said, he uses chapter 2 as his proof for that being true. And he kind of explores these three different avenues. You know, avenues that we've probably each tried to walk down ourselves at one point or another. And he says he just did it better than anyone else, right? Like, he went to its natural extreme and found nothing. There was no real pot of gold at the end of this rainbow. He said, I pursued the absolute maximum of human material pleasure. And you know what? They seemed to have no purpose at all, and they were fleeting. He said, okay, well, then I tried a different path. I I acquired wisdom. I was was far more wise than any of my contemporaries. I, 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 I dug this deep reservoir of knowledge. And you know what? I and the fool alike are headed for the same mortal end. The rewards of wisdom are fleeting. Okay, well then I, I invested myself in my work. I, I, I used skill and expertise. I crafted with care and integrity. I attached myself to my work. And you know what? Everything I've done will be handed off to someone who did nothing to deserve it. They might be a fool. They might be wise. I don't get to pick. Whoever's coming after me gets what I worked for. And my personal attachment to all of my accomplishments, they're fleeting as well. And to this, you know, we might say, like, yeah, sure, that sounds sad. But, like, we know the truth, right? Like, all good things must come to an end, right? Like, Henry Chaucer knew what he was talking about. All good things must come to an end. 
But though we might know that in our heads, I think we tend to rage against this reality as often as possible. You know, whether consciously or subconsciously, it doesn't really matter. We try our very hardest to make that simple truth as untrue as possible. Like we try to preserve our pleasures as best we can. We try to make permanent our thoughts, and you experience the long-lasting effects of wisdom, and we try to forever attach our name to our work. And that's, that's the great toil of the teachers described in Ecclesiastes 2, you know, trying to stave off impermanence and trying to cheat this slow fade of time. And, and I think that is our great, our great toil as well. And I, and I think along the way, we have, we have created instruments and tools designed for this very purpose. I mean, think about the devices we have. Like, all the ways that those promise to cheat impermanence and stave off kind of the vanishing drip of time. I mean, we take pictures of fireworks, right? Like, so dumb. <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm more guilty of this than anyone, like, having, having a one-year-old son. You know, if he so much as sneezes in a funny way, like, I have to capture it, right? And the language of that is so interesting. I have to capture his, his funny little sneeze because, heaven forbid, a good thing gets away from me. Heaven forbid I can't control it and capture it and take it with me. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a photo that's, that's now famous. I mean, this, this photo is going to hang in a, in a museum one day because um, it's kind of haunting. Uh, so, so LeBron James was closing in on Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's all-time NBA scoring record, a record that many believed would never be broken. And so people were tracing LeBron's trajectory towards breaking this record. And the game that was identified as the most likely game that he would put himself over the top, ticket prices soared. Like, to just be in the arena, in the highest seats, you were paying thousands of dollars. If you wanted kind of a lower bowl seat, you were paying $10,000. And if you wanted to be down by the floor, the average ticket price was $60,000. People put such a high value on presence for this historic moment. And then, when this historic moment had finally arrived, this happened. I don't know if you can see it from where you're sitting, but every single person, you can go through that picture, you can even span out further and see even more. Every single person experienced this moment through their screen. They had put such a high value on presence, but then watched it through their phone. And it wasn't because it made this moment more enjoyable, but because it was a desperate attempt to preserve this pleasure forever. They paid tens of thousands of dollars for presents, but traded that for the feeble attempt of permanence. And, you know, the same, the same thing can be said about any thought that comes into our head, kind of if we pivot away from the pleasure avenue to the wisdom one. You know, any, any good thought that comes into our head, what does our device say? Tweet it. Like, write it down. Let other people know just how clever you are. I need to be attached to that stream of wisdom, right? And then it can certainly be said, if we pivot to the last 
channel of how we approach work. There's, um, there's an artist. Uh, many of you have probably heard his name, Banksy. He's one of the most creative and unique artists alive. I mean, Banksy's works are treasures. And Banksy was, uh, was interviewed um, for a documentary, and he was asked kind of what, what motivates him as an artist. And he said, I never want to die twice. And he was asked what he meant, and he said, well, you die twice. I don't know if you know this, but you die twice. You die first when you literally physically pass away. You know, you cease to have a beating heartbeat. That's the first death. And he said, and the second death is when somebody says your name for the very last time. And if I make art that is admired for history, I'll never die twice. My name will never be forgotten. Pleasures, intellect, work, we try to preserve them all. We try to attach themselves to them permanently. And I think it's to this pursuit, this kind of effort, that the teacher says, Hevel, Hevel. Worthless, meaningless. What a mirage, right? What an absolute mirage. It's a pursuit without an end. It's a goal without hope of success. And so then at the end of the chapter, kind of after describing those three avenues that led him nowhere, he says, do you want to know my advice? Like, I've lived a long life. I've done a lot of good things. Do you want to know my advice kind of now at the end? Well, here it is. And it comes in verse 24. And it's startling. He says, There is nothing better for people than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in their work. What? Like, what What an absolute outrage. Like, that's your advice? Didn't you, like, just wax eloquent for 23 verses about how the pleasures of this world are ultimately fleeting and meaningless, and now that's your advice at the end of all of that? Like, what, what a surrender this seems to the frivolity of life, right? You know, it, it seems such a resignation towards, like, well, if you can't beat them, join them. Like, if you know it sucks anyway, well, you might as well just try to have some fun along the way. Well, if we really think about it, honestly, I think, I think there's a lot of beauty to that advice. There's a, a phrase he's been continually repeating, you probably heard it, was chasing the wind. Right? He says that so many times in the first two chapters, in chapter two especially, five times. He describes chasing the wind. You know, trying to preserve your name in this vast, grand timeline of history. Yeah, you're chasing the wind. You want to preserve all of your pleasures? You want to make all good things permanent? Yeah, you're, you're chasing the wind. And yeah, that's, that's a really good characterization of futility. Like, it, it does a good job of describing something you can never seem to catch up to. But also, and I think this is really important, it's not something you need to chase, right? Like the wind, the wind will catch you. Like stop, stop chasing, stand still for a second, and you'll be surrounded by the wind, right? 
It hits you and often refreshes you. Like, what's, what's, what's better than a breeze? And so the teacher is saying the great futility of our quest for permanence and prominence is twofold. First, yes, you can't catch it. You can't control it. You certainly can't preserve it. It's not something that you can catch up to. But second, and more importantly, I believe, you don't have to. The wind will catch you. Your endless chasing, your tireless pursuit of the thing that's actually behind you, right, is actually coming up on you. And, and you think prominence, preservation, permanence are the very things that God has already offered to his people. You know, God has made us for eternity. You know, we have an appetite for the permanent because it was instilled within us. You know, in, in the Garden of Eden, the, the narrative talks about two trees. And, you know, we, we often think most of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and, you know, I get that. That's a really fundamental and central place in the story. But next to it was also the tree of life. And I believe that it was God's intention to feed us from both in its right time, in its right place. You know, another way to describe the knowledge between good and evil and the ability to choose one over the other is wisdom. I think he wanted to feed us from his own hand with wisdom and eternity in its right place in the right way. And our great error is that we took, we manipulated, we wanted to decide what was good and evil. We were chasing when the wind was behind us. And the second, much like our appetite for permanence, the inclination to be known forever was instilled in us as well. Like we weren't made for our names to be forgotten. We were made to be known forever. You know, when, when, when talking to his followers in Luke t chapter 10, Jesus says, don't rejoice in what you've done. Like, don't rejoice that you were able to cast out demons that they listened to you. Don't rejoice about that. If you're going to rejoice in anything, rejoice in this. That your name is written in the book of life. Rejoice because I will remember your name. Your name will survive the great cosmic timeline of history, not because you've attached yourself to something that you did that was really impressive and admirable. No, no, no. Your name will survive the great timeline of history because I will remember it. I will never stop speaking your name. The true futility that the teacher is highlighting for us is chasing prominence and permanence, trying to create eternity and avoid by our own work the second death without realizing that Jesus has already credited those things to your account. You're doing everything you possibly can think of to gain a thing that has already been given you. That's the great futility of life. Dallas Willard kind of described the Christian life in two different ways. He said, many of us think of the Christian life as rowing a boat, right? Like if I'm going to get from A to B, I've got to row, I've got to toil, I've got to labor. He says, that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is just raising your sails. Let the wind fill your sails and take you. 
The great futility is chasing the thing you can't catch when if you were to just stand still, it would catch you, right? And consider what Paul talked about in Ephesians, and and you can throw it up, Taya. Even though we were dead in offenses, God made us alive together with Christ. Permanence. We're alive with him, the permanent God. By grace, you are saved. And he raised us up together with him and seated us together with him in the heavenly realms. Prominence. He'll remember your name because he put you next to himself. To demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. You're chasing the wind while the wind is chasing you. Just stop. Just stand still. Be surrounded by the wind. These things, prominence, permanence, we're chasing them. Jesus says, I've already credited them to you. Just accept it as a gift. It's true. Ecclesiastes often feels quite dark. It feels heavy. You know, it feels like it gives language to the bleakest moments of our lives. But I also want you to hear this today. In Ecclesiastes 2, I think this is our fundamental takeaway. Rest. Enjoy. Right? Rest. Enjoy. The great, tireless striving of our lives, what the teacher was after for meaning, for permanence, for prominence, for knownness, it's done. Right? It's, it's already done. It's accomplished. This has been credited to your account. And so I think this is why the teacher, with his outrageous advice in, ja- in verse 24, says, there's nothing better for people than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in their work. And I, and I hope now, here at the end, when you hear it a second time, you hear it a little bit differently. It's not a resignation to despair. It's not a surrender to the frivolity of life. No, not at all. It's an invitation to rest and simply enjoy the things that you've been given that will come and go. But that's fine. And you know, the second half of this verse is, I perceived that this ability to find enjoyment comes from God. For no one can eat and drink or experience joy apart from him. You know, once... Once we understand that our, our material pleasures, our own knowledge and intellect, and our own attachment to our work no longer bears the weight of creating ultimate meaning for us, then we're freed to just enjoy them for what they are because we don't have to ask them to be anything more than that. You know, feel the sun on your face. This is something the teacher will say, just feel the sun on your face, knowing full well that the sun will set, and that's fine. Enjoy it as a gift right now. You know, watch LeBron break an unbreakable record knowing that the game will end. But enjoy it as a gift for now. And, you know, take pleasure in your work. Feel satisfaction in the things that you put your hands to, knowing full well that, yeah, 
this will too end. But God was pleased with it. And he was glad you enjoyed it. Ultimately, the thing we really want, Jesus has already secured for us and said that's not going to pass away. It is secure in your account. I have sealed it for you with the Holy Spirit. So enjoy and rest. Now, this has been such a freeing and settling idea for me, right? Like the mystery of a wise Christian life is the realization that Jesus has already secured the deepest and most ingrained yearning of your existence. And so we don't have to ask any other part of our life to be that for us. We don't have to ask any other part of our life to accomplish that for us. We are enabled then to be present and enjoy little gifts because we don't have to worry about our legacy anymore. We don't have to worry about stretching these things as far as they can and accomplishing some deep itch that lies on our soul. Jesus says, stop chasing the wind. The wind is chasing you. Uh, since, since I first uh, read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, there was one, one scene in particular uh, that has just stuck with me. And if you're unfamiliar with this book, Screwtape Letters is, it's a, it's a novel that is kind of describing a conversation between two demons trying to best come up with a strategy on how to tempt and distract a follower of Jesus. And in one of Screwtape's best bits of advice, in essence, he says, pull him out of the present. Make it impossible to stop enjoying the little pleasures of life. And he says this, the humans live in time, but our enemy, being God, destines them to eternity. He, therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to two things, to eternity itself and to that point of time which they call present. For the present is the point at which time touches eternity. Of the present moment and of it only, humans have an experience analogous, analogous to the experience which our enemy has of reality as a whole. In it alone, freedom and actuality are offered them. He would therefore have them continually concerned either with eternity, which means being concerned with him, or concerned with the present, either meditating on their eternal union with him, or else obeying the present voice of conscience, bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, giving thanks for the present pleasure. And friends, I think there is no better way to fully experience the present pleasure and celebrate the present grace than with our daily bread. Right? Like that language is so interesting and so magnificent. Like we, we weren't told to ask for storehouses of bread. We weren't asked, or we weren't told to ask for an abundance of bread, a, a nest egg to fall back on. No. We were told to ask for our daily bread and not worry about tomorrow. Daily bread says, enjoy the meal. Enjoy the momentary meal and remember that I've already settled on a menu for tomorrow. And so when we come 
to this table, which we're going to do in just a second, remember that this is a gift to be enjoyed as you take it right now. And it's also a promise that the bigger things are taken care of. The deepest appetites of our soul have already been tended to by God. Let's pray. Jesus, forgive us for our obsession with trying to create the thing that you promised to give us. I don't know if it's because we didn't want to receive, we take deeper pride in being creators, but we're chasing the wind. Thank you for allowing us to see that. Cause us to stop. Cause us to rest. And let us feel the wind catch up to us, surrounding us, giving us the thing we really want. You have sealed our eternity. You have placed our name alongside yours. What a mystery, but thanks be to God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.